Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. This morning, we're going to spend our time uh, going from verse 25 through the end of the chapter, and then we're going to dump ourselves out uh, based on the context, based on the thought. We're going to dump ourselves out in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This morning, my hope, my agenda here is to communicate the right response to mercy the right response to mercy. We're going to see three different responses or three different ways that we respond to the great mercy of God. So I hope you'll see that. But I also have a really important component to the message in which uh, we begin to see what the will of God is in view of the context of Romans 9, 10, 11, and this first part of 12. We're actually going to see the will of God as we, we all know the famous passage in Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, but sadly, we often make that mean something about individual will for me, what is God's will for me in my life, what am I supposed to do with my life, and I think with the context, you're going to see exactly what the Apostle Paul has in view. So, without further ado, we'll start at Romans chapter 11, verse 25. As I always do, I'll be making points, I'll be moving to different passages of scripture, so um, follow me for the changes and try to keep up. Here we go. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, as we've spent time over the past couple of weeks, we have understood that the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is not to be taken uh, one chapter at a time or one verse in isolation, but it is to be understood in the body that of work that Paul has presented to us. And what we have here is a summation of all that he has communicated. I don't want you to be uninformed of a very, very great mystery. I said this a couple of weeks ago, Uh, many people in the church today, when they can't understand something, they often wrongly appeal to mystery. It's not always a mystery. And in this case, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed of the mystery. And so he goes and he explains it. And here is what he has been communicating for three chapters now. There is a partial hardening of Israel, who is Israel in this context, disobedient, obstinate, unbelieving Israel. So when you put all those together, what you come to the conclusion of, what you see rightly, is disobedient, obstinate, unbelieving, therefore hardened Israel. And so they have been partially hardened, but for a purpose. This is the great mystery. These are God's chosen people. So what is the great question? Has God forsaken his promise? 
Has God let these people down? I mean, didn't God say of these people, you are mine and you always will be? Yes, he did. And no, he has not failed on his promise. So he has partially hardened Israel, disobedient, unbelieving, obstinate Israel, so that, here's an amazing piece of mystery, so that you and I might be saved so that the Gentiles might be brought in to the mix. So again, he states it very clearly. He says, I do not want you, brethren, who is he talking to? Fellow Christians, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. I'm going to explain to you that there's a tension happening in Rome at this time. But here's what I want you to see. For I do not want you, brethren, fellow Christians, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. I will explain what it means to be wise in your own estimation here as well. That a partial hardening has happened to who? Israel. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then the great promise is this. And so, after that fullness is, and so, all of Israel will be saved. So God's mercy is still extended to Israel, even though there is a partial hardening happening. Now, let's understand some pieces of evidence here. He is talking to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ These brothers and sisters in Rome have experienced a very interesting turn of events. In Acts chapter 18, we see it, and in Romans chapter 1, we see it. There's been a great dispersion of the Jews scattered out from Rome. But in Romans 1, they have begun to come back. They have started to to reemerge in Rome. The problem is that there is an ethnic tension that's going on. The Jewish people are coming back in, whether they believe in Jesus or not, and they're saying the message you're preaching sounds like God is no longer for Israel. Is that true? And Paul says, may it never be. God has never been unfaithful, and he never will be unfaithful. So one group of people, the Romans, or the Jewish people, have come back into Rome, and they're confused about this. In the meantime, the Gentile believers have gotten a little bit arrogant, They've gotten a little bit high and mighty. Actually, this very mindset uh, continues to this day. They believed that they had replaced God's people. They were the new chosen people of God. This theory or this ideology is present in the church today under the name of replacement theology. Listen to me very clearly. God loves his people, the Jewish people. There is much benefit in who they are. Paul says it in Romans chapter 2. What benefit is, is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. He has never rejected these people. He continues to be faithful. And even though he has judicially hardened them in response to their stubborn, obstinate unbelief, he is still extending mercy to those people. That's a powerful idea. But the Gentiles had been, had, had been uh, you know, accepted by God now, and they had begun to believe that they were, they were it. This is it. And I can prove that their arrogance was true. So turn back to Romans 11, verse 13, and you'll see this amazing uh, dissertation of Paul against the pride of the Gentiles. But I am speaking to you, 
who are Gentiles. So it's, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, it's the Apostle Paul in his sermon or in his letter calling out a people group. So just like I would say, hey, husbands, listen up. Hey, wives, listen up. Hey, teenagers, I want to talk to you. He's saying, Gentiles, I want you to listen. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then, as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So what is Paul's view? Same as God's. To save hardened Israel. Verse 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world. Let's use the Bible to interpret terms. What does the world mean here? It means the nations or Gentiles. If their uh, judgment has meant the reconciliation of the Gentiles. We'll look at what happens next. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You remember the prodigal son story? You remember what, the, what the, the father says to the older son about the younger one when he returns? He said he once was dead and now he's alive. Israel had been dead to God, but they will be alive again. Isn't that an amazing truth? Why are they alive to God again? Because of his mercy. So he says, their acceptance, hardened, unbelieving Israel, who then will have an extension of mercy, they will be life from the dead. Verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, Israel, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, the branches are too. Jesus, the root, we, the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive... Say, I'm a wild olive. That's right, you're a wild olive. Okay. Some of you more on the wild part than the olive part, but still, I am a wild olive. If you, being a wild olive, use the Bible to interpret the terms, what is the wild olive here? Gentiles. Okay? He is speaking, verse 13, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. But if you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became part, uh, a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, Jesus himself. Do not be, say it with me, church, arrogant toward the branches. What is happening in Israel, or what is happening in Rome, is that the, Jew, the Gentile believers have thought, we're it. We're the, we're the new people of God. No, no, no. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. But, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember. You ever had those moments when your dad said, hey, remember who's boss around here? I brought you into the world. I can take you out. Everybody knows it, right? So God is saying through Paul, he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Remember who you are, bud. Remember that. It is not you who supports the root but the root supports you. You will say then, and this was their claim, this was their claim, branches were broken off that we might be grafted in. We're the new people. Branches were broken off. Paul says, that's true, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. Uh, They were broken off because God Chose them before the foundation of... No. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. How are we saved, church? By grace through faith. Always. How are we kept, church? By grace through faith. Please don't miss this. 
Please don't miss this. Too many Christians live by their actions. Now, I'm going to get to holiness by the end of the message today. But too many Christians are living by their actions so as to pay God back. You know you can't pay God back. Okay, maybe, maybe you don't think of it in the right sense so that you would, you'd amen that a little more readily that you can't pay God back. Who bought us at a price? Jesus did. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. How precious is the Son of God? Beyond compare. He is priceless. He is beyond compare. His blood was shed for you. So think about what self-righteousness actually says to God when we try to uh, pay God back for our salvation. We're actually saying that all of my actions and all of my deeds should be put on a scale and made equal with the blood of the most precious son of God. We don't think of it that way. We look at it and we go, well, you know, I don't want God to remain mad at me. He's not mad at you if you are in him. He loves you. He has bled for you. He has died for you. He cares for you. But for you to assert in self-righteousness that you would pay God back is for you to say, my actions, whatever they are, are on par with the precious blood of Jesus. This is why the Bible rightly says our good deeds are filthy rags. (laughs) They don't measure up. In comparison, this is a joke, okay? So we go on. He says, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your, say it again with me, church, faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. The very first, uh, the very first response to mercy is actually fear. It's actually fear, but the, but the right kind of fear. How many of you know that the Bible says perfect love casts out fear? Okay, Uh, because, and remember what the context says, because fear has to do with judgment. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with judgment. But here, the fear is a reverent honor before God, knowing that my place before him is simply a result of mercy. Without that mercy, I should tremble. I should, be, I should have a phobia, as the, the, one of the Greek words would, would work for this. I should have a phobia, but instead, I'm supposed to live in reverence. And why is it that I don't have a phobia kind of fear, but a reverent kind of fear? Because I no longer face judgment. What does John 3, 16, 17, and 18 say? It says, verse 18 specifically, says, those who believe in Jesus are not judged. So I don't have to worry about fear. I don't have to worry about paying God back. I've already been deemed righteous. I've already been deemed innocent. I've already been deemed a child of God. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> Just making sure. Might have to slip into, slip into Pentecostal and start going, ah, I said, ah. Anyway, <laughs> verse 21. So instead, we ought to fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And this is where a right view of fearing God is important. Uh, He will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness, and say it with me, church, and severity of God. Two weeks ago, I said, "There's there's the sermon title nobody seems to use. 
what we say is behold the kindness of God. But behold the severity of God. A severity that says you are not righteous in and of yourself. You cannot be righteous in and of yourself. After being made righteous, you can't pay God back for that. Your response is trust him. It is faith. You believe him. He is good. Amen? So the idea here is you have arrogant Gentiles who believe they've taken over. And God says, uh, through Paul, he says, you don't be arrogant at all, but instead you should live in fear. Because if God hardened them, if he cut them off, what can he do to you? The same. Why would he do so to you? He's not going to change the rules for Jews versus Gentiles. Why were they cut off? Unbelief. Unbelief. Verse, uh, verse 20 again. They were broken off for their unbelief. So what are you supposed to do? Hold fast. Stand firm. Endure to the end. Look it up in your Bibles. Every time you see those phrases, hold fast, stand firm, endure to the end, they are always in reference to enduring by faith not enduring by some sort of perfection on your own behalf or some sort of paying God back. That's not what it's referring to. And anytime we see that we are to act, it is always in view of mercy. It is always as a response of faith to that mercy. So let's keep going. Verse 22, behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Who is who fell? Who is that? Israel, did they, fall, did they stumble so as to fall permanently? May it never be, Paul says. Those who fell, severity, but to you, who is you here, Gentiles, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Well, Nathan, that, that seems contrary to what you just said. If you continue in his kindness, read it again. It does not say if you continue in your kindness, it says if you continue in his kindness. How is his kindness extended to you? Graciously. How do you respond to his kindness? By faith. That's it. Okay? You are to continue in his kindness. Now, are we as Christians to be kind? Michael, are we to be kind? I need a louder response because... Amen. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Just in case you want a really good cupcake, go see Michael. He, he runs Abbey Girl Suites in, uh, in Eastgate. But anyway, so do I get paid for that? That a cu- oh, Boom. <laughs> I love this. Okay. So, but here, here's the deal. We are to be kind. Why are we to be kind? Because the fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a lot to what we should do in view of mercy. But we need to understand very clearly we are to continue in God's kindness. Why are we saved? By the utter mercy of a king. He did not owe us anything. You are not saved because you're special. He did not save you because you're good enough and smart enough and doggone it, people like you. He saved you because he is love. And that is astounding to me. It is astounding to me when I really see mercy. So the response is that we should fear. Fear in this context is that we should revere him enough to walk inside of that particular kindness. So let's continue on. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise, you also will be cut off. 
You are saved by grace through faith, and you are kept by grace through faith. These are the words of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Spirit of God. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, who is they here? Hardened Israel. Make sure you pay attention to this. And if they do not continue in their unbelief, they don't continue in their judicial hardening. Yes, the answer out of judicial hardening is believe for goodness sakes. So if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. Again, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, Gentiles, how much more will these... Israel, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. Back to verse 25, finally. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. The great mystery of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that disobedient, obstinate, unbelieving Israel has been hardened by God in response to that, and God has shown mercy to the Gentiles. But why is he showing mercy to the Gentiles? Because this is how merciful our God is. He still wants Israel to be saved. I shared it last week. I don't think we really wrap our heads around this, and I need you to, I need you to play this game with me. I need you to process this, this, this kind of story with me and see what you would do. So here's the story of God first. Mark 12 communicates it. God plants a vineyard. He leases it to the, uh, the vine growers, which are the Israelite people. He leases it to them. He sends his prophets to them so that he can get a reward from this. Remember, it says he leased it to them. So it was a gracious blessing for them to have this vineyard and for them to be chosen apart from everybody else. So he goes in with his prophets and he seeks to get a reward for this. There's, there's uh, shadows of tithe, there's shadows of Levitical law inside of this. But he goes to receive this particular reward from them. And what do they do to his prophets? They kill him. They beat him. They stone him. They kill him. Okay? God doesn't stop his mercy there. What God does is he says, surely my son will not be rejected by them. Surely they will, these are the words, they will respect my son. Now, how'd that go down? They killed him on a Roman cross, something quite like that. So they hung him on a cross and they murdered the Lord of glory. Remember just a couple of minutes ago, I shared with you that we're talking about the precious son of God. We're talking about the, the precious blood of Jesus. There is nothing more precious than this in all of the world. And it's self-righteous to think we can equal that by trying to pay God back. So they kill that precious son. And you know what God does? He says, go to hell. No, 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 that's the wrong story. So he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He, he does not condemn them. I seriously don't understand God. Because God does not condemn them. Instead, because of their unbelief, he hardens Israel and goes to us as another act of mercy so that by jealousy, through provocation, they would come back. Would you want those people after that? Not me. 
So here's my theory. Here's my thought, right? If it were my daughter and somebody came and they killed my daughter, I want you to, I want you to see mercy here for a second. If they came and they stole my daughter and they killed my daughter, and you can pick any one of them because I love them all deeply. First of all, it would be little more like Liam Neeson and Taken because I would, I would kill them all. Anyway, I have a special set of skills. <laughs> you don't know about them, but I do. Anyway, so if they stole my daughter and they killed my daughter and they came back to me, how, how hard would it be, do you think? How hard would it be for you? How hard would it be for me to actually get to the place where I say, I loved my daughter immensely. She was the most precious thing to me, but I forgive you. How hard is that? Is that hard? Okay, but that's not God. That's just my little petty version of mercy and grace. You know what mercy is? Mercy is pity. Grace is unmerited favor. Mercy is pity and grace is unmerited favor. I can pity the person who killed my daughter. And I might be able to forgive that person. But now let me ask you the question. How likely do you think it would be that I would welcome them into my house and say, why don't you eat with my family? And just so you know, I love you. Oh, and by the way, I want to pour out blessing on you. I need you to think about it. If it were your child, there is no chance apart from the Spirit of God moving you that you would be moved to that level of compassion. And God, his prophets are slaughtered. His son, most precious, is killed. And yet he still says, I'm not just going to have pity on you. I'm not just going to show you mercy, but I want to show you grace. Unmerited favor. You are my people. I want to bless you. I want to pour forth my blessing on you. Something that you can't fathom. I am unlike my God. And it breaks my heart. And this is what, again, sanctification is all about. Because the perfect that God is drawing me towards is a perfect that doesn't just forgive and forget, but a perfect that loves his enemies. I'm lost, church. I'm lost. Oh, but I'm a professional Christian, so I must know I don't get it any better. This is hard. But over time, we are coming to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And as you read that in context, you understand Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6. You understand it means that we would love those who hate us. That is perfection. I am not sure of the depth and the riches of God's mercy. In light of that mercy, I should live in reverent fear. Why? Because I earned none of it, and I deserve none of it. So let's keep going. Verse 25, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. I told you that we would talk about that. What was the wise in their own estimation according to the context? They were proud and thought they had replaced Israel. It's not just that they thought they knew what Paul was saying versus what he wasn't, but they thought they owned this thing. No, don't be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. That word all there... It means all and it doesn't mean all. Uh Uh-oh. What a pain. 
What a pain. It means all and it doesn't mean all. Will all Israel be saved? Absolutely without question. Is all Israel Israel? No. What did Paul say constitutes true Israel? Faith. All Israel will be saved because all Israel means the faithful who have not bowed their knee to Baal, who have not turned to idols, who have not run from God. And the same is true for you. All will be saved who live by faith. All will be saved. So he goes and he says, all Israel will be saved. He has already established the case of what true Israel is, those who walk by faith. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they, who's they? Israel, hardened Israel, are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now there's a verse that's used way out of context. And we tend to attribute it to our own personal calling. And maybe, maybe there's a way that we can make the case that all uh, callings, like if you're called to be a pastor, you're called to be a teacher, something like this, that that call is irrevocable. But in its context here, you have to understand the call that is irrevocable here is the call of Israel to be his people. It is irrevocable. Verse 30, For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, who's there? Israel, hardened Israel. Verse 31, So these also now have been disobedient, hardened Israel has been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they also may now be shown mercy provoking them to jealousy, but still offering mercy to these people. I just, I'm, I'm marveling at the level of the mercy of God. And you're going to see what should be the right response to mercy beyond fear here in just a second. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to who? All. If we know all to be those who walk by faith, what does all mean there? Those who walk by faith. But he wants to show mercy to all. So believe. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. But it's amazing how God does it. Because God first has to overcome a problem inside of your heart and inside of my heart. And that is, he has to shut you and I up under sin. It's not that we didn't sin before until God moves in a certain way. It's that we're too stupid to see that we sinned. We don't recognize our sin. We have a culture and a world that says, I'm a good person. What's the Bible say? Not so much. Not so much. What is true of every human being in the world? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Bob, what's Siri say to that question? He's not, she's not saying anything productive, though. It's, it's awesome. So I, Bob, I'll let your Bible app read this. Anyway, now he's mad at me. I, don't, I won't call you out on that. It's just Bob's my friend. So anyway, so the first response to mercy is fear, right? 
Now look at the second response to mercy. God has shut up all the world under sin. Verse 33, look at this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The first response to to mercy is fear, reverent fear before God. The second response to mercy is glorification, to glory in God. Here Here is my statement to you, church. God is most glorified by his mercy for all. Because when you read it in context, it dumps us out to say God has shut up everybody under sin so that he might show mercy to all and your response is to glory in his mercy. It is not most glorifying to God that he would be just. He is. You can't wiggle out of that. God is just. It doesn't matter what you think about it. But what is amazing is that God is most glorified in his mercy or his provision for all. And that provision and that mercy doesn't make any sense to a human being. That's why he says, who's God's counselor that he should coach him on what he should do? (laughs) Say, not me. Say that. Not me. I am not God's counselor. And God's word says that he has shut all up under sin so that he might show mercy to all. The second response to mercy is absolute glorification through our worship and through our praise. That's what we should do. You know why we have a weakened worship uh, uh, world, in, uh, worship culture in the world today? Because we've forgotten what mercy really is. We've really forgotten what mercy is. We've lost sight of all of those things. But when you really grasp mercy, when you understand that you were the one who killed the son of glory, you were the one who murdered the father's son, and he didn't just have pity on you, but he blesses you and blesses you and blesses you if you will surrender and trust him, if you will put your faith in him, if you understand that, you cannot sit idly by while worshiping. You cannot do it. But when you see mercy, it will change everything of who you are. Won't it? Won't it? It changes everything of who we are. So finally, we dump into Romans 12, 1 and 2, and this is how we wrap up today. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The third response to mercy is a life lived in holiness. Your life is a life surrendered to God so much that in view of mercy, every day you put yourself on the altar and say, God, I pray that this is a pleasing aroma to you, not to pay you back, but in view of your great love for me. You establish that every day and say, I'm dead to myself. All my wants and desires, the the opinions I have of people, the feelings I have towards those who have hurt me, that person who killed my child, whatever it is, the response is, in view of that mercy, you have every part of me, Lord. The first 
The first response to mercy is reverent fear. The second part of mercy or response to mercy is adoration and glorification of God. The third is living a life holy and pleasing to our Father. Anybody who doesn't understand that God calls us to righteousness in view of mercy, anybody who asserts because of mercy I can sin and grace will abound is completely wrong-headed. You do not understand the depth of the mercy of God. It is not a small thing for you to look at the mercy of God and say, eh, I'm in. It's, that's not what our call is. That's not what our call is. So in the context, and here's, here's how we wrap it up. This is amazing because it's going to talk about the will of God. In the context, what has happened? Jews and Gentile believers have lived in some sort of ethnic tension with each other. Saying, well, we're the chosen people of God, but now we're the replacement of those people. And God says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not true. I have shown mercy to all. I have shown mercy to all of you. So I urge you, brethren, in view of mercy, present your body as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. To present your body in this context is to live in unity with the body of Christ. Look at what he says. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. He doesn't say renew your mind so that you may know the will of God. He says renew your mind so that you may prove the will of God. What was their, as many pastors say, what was their stinking thinking? What was their problem? Their problem is it was us versus them. The right response is God has shown mercy to us all. Your mind needs to be changed. And when your mind is changed, Psalm 133, 1 is true. Blessed is, uh, or, or how good and glorious it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. This is what God wants of his church. This is what God wanted in Rome. Not division, but unity. And here's what's true. When the church lives in unity with one another, the world takes note but see, we've robbed the world of knowing the will of God as well. Because what the world asserts by their assessment of the church today is that it is God's will for every Christian to just be mad at every other Christian. Why? Because every Christian seems to be mad at every other Christian. That seems to be the assertion. In Rome, it was true. The Gentile believers and the Jewish believers are, eh, meh, meh, meh. The, I'm in, you're out, I'm out, you're in, whatever it is. They're in tension. And the context shows that what we're supposed to do is renew our mind, that we might prove the will of God. We are one in the Lord, church. We are one in Jesus. Every one of us in here, we are one in Jesus. And so he says, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And just to prove it a little further, verse 3, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. You know what happens when pride enters the picture? Division. You know what, happened when, what happens when humility enters the picture? Acceptance and love, and mercy. 
So the three responses to mercy have to be, number one, fear the Lord your God. What happens when you fear the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? It's the beginning of even understanding this stuff he's telling us. So fear God. Second, when you really grasp mercy, you will praise him with your mouth and praise him with your tongue and praise him through times of worship and honor. You will. It's clear. Paul just did it at the end of his letter for, or at the end of the chapter, seemingly out of nowhere. How majestic is God? And he goes through this whole diatribe. And then finally, we live a holy and pleasing life to God. And in this context, that holiness, that righteousness is to live together in unity with fellow brothers and sisters. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.